The following sermon was recorded in the Westminster Chapel on Sunday evening, the 24th of February, 1957, and is another in the series that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on John chapter 3. And this sermon is on John chapter 3, verse 16. We've been considering the message of this great third chapter of the Gospel according to St. John every Sunday evening since the second Sunday evening of this new year, 1957. And we come in our consideration of the chapter to this particular verse this evening. Now this is, I suppose, the best-known verse in the whole of the Bible. However ignorant people may have become of the Bible, of the Scriptures, in this age and generation in which you and I live, it is probably true to say that most people at any rate have heard this particular verse and are able to recite it. It is one of those great outstanding statements in Holy Writ. Martin Luther described this verse in, the, in these words. He said that this particular verse is the Bible in miniature. And it's a very good description of it. It's a kind of synopsis of the whole of the Bible and its message to the human race. But I am bold to assert at the same time that there is probably no single verse in the whole of Scripture that is so frequently misused and so completely misunderstood as this particular verse. This is, of course, uh, the verse, I say, of every man. It's every man's verse. And I suppose it is for that reason very largely that it is so frequently misused and misunderstood. Now, I want to mention in particular certain ways in which this verse is misused. There are some people who just use it as a kind of incantation. They just like to repeat it because it's such a wonderful and such a beautiful statement. And they just go on repeating it without ever really facing it, without ever considering it, without ever analyzing it. They just go on repeating it. You know the glib way in which so many people talk about John 3.16. And whenever I hear them speaking about it like that, I always have a feeling within me, well, there at any rate is a man or a number of people who have never really faced this verse and never really considered what it says. It's not meant to be an incantation. That is a danger with many of the greatest and the most beautiful statements in the Bible. We can be so charmed by the very sound of the words that we never really stop to consider what they're saying. Now, the scriptures are really not to be sung. The scriptures are to be considered, they're to be faced. They're not music, they're not poetry primarily, they're truth. And truth is to be looked at and to be considered and analyzed. There's a very grave danger, I say, that we can just be so fascinated by the mere sound of words that that in and of itself, with all its charm, robs us of the real meaning of the words. God forbid that anybody should just go on repeating John 3.16 and enjoying it so much that he or she really has no knowledge of what it really says. Then another way in which this often happens is this. There are many people who have always understood this verse to say this, that the love of God is so great and so wonderful that everybody's going to be saved. You know the kind of argument I mean. People say, oh, well, of course, uh, I, I, I know that there are people who talk about their doctrines and so on. I'm not bothered about all that. They say, God is love. Doesn't John 3.16 say so? 
And what they mean by that more or less is this, that it doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter what sort of life you live, doesn't matter very much what you believe, because God is love and God has loved the world. Everybody is going to heaven. There's no difficulty, there's no exception at all. God's love, they say, is the thing that matters. You know, it's because they say that God is love. So many people today never darken the doors of a place of worship. They're relying on this fact that God is love, and their interpretation is, as I say, that it doesn't matter at all what you do or say or think. This love of God is a kind of umbrella that's going to cover everybody. Now, they say that in terms of John 3.16. The very verse, you see, which shows you the moment you really face it, that that cannot be right, because it's only whosoever believeth in him that is not going to perish, but to have everlasting life. And there at once the world is divided into two great sections. So, you see, it is possible to take a great statement like this, and to be so prejudiced that all you see in it is something that confirms your prejudice. The trouble is still that instead of facing the verse and considering what it says, we read our meaning into it and thus have never really faced it at all. This is, I say, so frequently used as uh, the great argument for saying that there is no such thing as wrath in God that there's no judgment, that there's no hell. God so loved the world. There it is, they say. The universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. It's all right. It's all going to be wonderful. It's all coming out right at the end. This love of God is a guarantee of that. How often is it misinterpreted and misunderstood and misused in that way? The only other way to which I want to refer in passing this evening, in which this verse is so frequently misused and misunderstood, is this. And now I'm afraid I shall be speaking about many, even inside the Christian church. No longer those who are outside, like the second group, but those who are inside. This verse is very frequently used in this way. It's put up against theology. It's put up against doctrine. This is the favorite verse of the kind of man who says, well, of course, he says, I'm a simple man. I'm a plain sort of fellow. And I can't be bothered about all these great arguments in the epistles of Paul and so on. All I want is the simple gospel, and that's good enough for me. And the simple gospel says... God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the sort of thing I believe in. A simple gospel, none of your great doctrines and theology. You must have heard that many, many times. This putting up as antitheses, the so-called simple gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the theology and the arguments and the legalism, of the Apostle Paul, and so on. How frequently is this verse used in that particular way? Well, now, this might very well detain us this evening, but I'm anxious to present the verse to you in a more positive manner. However, we must just look at this, because you cannot really interpret this verse truly without showing the unutterable folly of all such misinterpretations. The very first word of this verse should have saved us from any of those grievous misunderstandings. You notice the first word in this verse is the little word for. For. In other words, John 3.16 is not an isolated statement. And the kind of people to whom I've been referring always take it as if it were an isolated statement. They know nothing about what goes before it. They don't know the previous 15 verses. They know nothing about the verses that follow. About all they really do know is John 3.16, which they say is enough for them. But you see, if you say it is enough, you've got to start with the first, verse, the first word. And the first word is the word for. 
And it's a connecting link. It's connecting with what has previously been said. Which means this. That you must of necessity interpret John 3.16 in its context. In the, verses, in the light of the verses that come before and in the light of the verses that follow. Now, you, you just can't leave out a, w- a word like that, and here it is. It at once establishes a certain connection. So the first thing that I have to say this evening as we work our way through this great chapter is that John 3.16, far from being an isolated verse or statement, is really but a continuation of what our Lord has been saying from the 11th verse of this particular chapter. And immediately, of course, it connects up with verses 14 and 50. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Again, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life or eternal life. It's a continuation of what's gone before, an elaboration of it. And at the same time, it is a great summary of all the previous statements. Now, I'm making this point for this good reason. That we cannot therefore interpret John 3.16 without bearing in mind everything which we have discovered, especially from verse 11 onwards. Here is in a summarized form everything that he's been saying in detail. That's what John 3.16 is. Now, as we've been considering verses 11 to 15, we have discovered uh, certain great doctrines, haven't we? Those who attend here regularly will remember that. Well, now then, all those doctrines are of necessity in this particular verse. It's the summary of all those. It's the thing that follows on from them. Four. And the moment uh, you realize that, you realize that John 3.16, far from being what it is supposed to be, just a simple, delightful statement about the love of God, with no doctrines in it whatsoever and no theology, is a verse which is literally packed with theology. Let me tell you some of the doctrines that are contained in this one verse. First and foremost, I find the doctrine of revelation. Revelation. Here is somebody speaking to a man called Nicodemus. And he's telling Nicodemus something that Nicodemus didn't know before. He's revealing truth to him. He's already been doing that, you remember. He has turned to Nicodemus, a master in Israel, a very religious and learned man. And he has said this. We speak that we do know and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. No man hath ascended up to heaven but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. He says, you don't know where you are. You must be born again. You must have a spiritual mind and outlook and understanding. You've never ascended into heaven. You know nothing. Listen. I'm revealing truth to you. Revelation. The second doctrine which I find here is the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Listen to it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God the Father, God the Son. And that inevitably suggests God the Holy Spirit. He has already been mentioned, in a sense, in the chapter. But you can't begin to consider God the Father and God the Son without seeing that eternal relationship and the absolute necessity for the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity is here. 
I'm still speaking to the men who doesn't like doctrine and theology, but who likes a simple gospel, and who says he finds it in John 3.16. The next doctrine which I find here is the doctrine of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. His only begotten Son. He's just been referring to himself as the Son of Man. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Son of Man, only begotten Son of God. At once, you see, John 3.16 brings you face to face with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, his eternal deity, his everlasting sonship, his unique relationship to God, the Word that has been made flesh, the Word that was in the beginning with God and that became incarnate in time. It's all here. And then, of course, we go on and we find the doctrine of sin and of the fall. I'm going to touch on that this evening so I don't stop with it now. Except to show you that I find it in these words, the world and perish. And then the next doctrine I find is the doctrine of the wrath of God and the punishment of sin. What's the meaning of the word perish? What's he mean by it? We've already seen it in verses 14 and 15. He just repeats it here. This is the summary of all he's been saying. He gathers it all up into a single verse. But the doctrine of the wrath of God is there facing us. Sin is to be punished. The next doctrine I find is the doctrine of the grace of God. He gave his only begotten son. He's provided a way of salvation. The next doctrine I find is the doctrine of the atonement. It's all in that one little word, gave. And the final doctrine which I find, which I think you will agree is the eighth, is the doctrine of justification by faith only. The way of salvation is whosoever believeth in him. No longer works of righteousness, but believing in the Son of God. That's the way. Justification by faith only. Surely, my friends, you must agree that I have substantiated my proposition when I have said that there is nothing which is quite so ridiculous and fatuous as to attempt to contrast this verse with doctrine and with theology. Martin Luther, as I told you at the beginning, says that this verse is the Bible in miniature. I think I'm equally entitled to say that it is a synopsis of theology. You've got eight of the most cardinal central doctrines of the whole Bible and the Christian faith stated in this one verse. And may I make a confession at this point from this pulpit. My greatest difficulty this evening was the difficulty of deciding what to do with this verse as far as I was concerned. In this way, that I am very anxious to preach on the eight doctrines, for they're all here. And what can I do? Well, I'll tell you what I have decided to do. There is an, a sense in which we have already considered some of these doctrines as we've worked our way through. We did consider, didn't we, in verses 11 to 13, the doctrine of the person of the Son of God. We have been considering in verses 14 and 15 something of the doctrine of the wrath of God upon men's sin as he punished those Israelites in the desert by sending fiery serpents amongst them that bit them and killed them. So he still punishes sin. Last Sunday evening we looked at that mighty doctrine of the atonement. Even so must, must the Son of Man be lifted up. If he isn't, there's no salvation. Very well then, I rather want this evening to look at this great verse. As it states, in a most beautiful form and in most beautiful terms, 
some of these great doctrines in terms of the love of God. Now, you remember that our context is, and we mustn't forget it for a moment, the Lord Jesus Christ is still speaking to Nicodemus, the man who thought he could understand, the man who thought that because he was a teacher in Israel that nobody could really help him very much, although he's rather impressed by the miracles that this person is working, and he has come to ask him a question or two. But the moment our Lord begins to speak, he asks his questions, how can these things be? And a little sarcasm comes in, can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Clever debating points. We are familiar with that, aren't we? And we all tend to do the same thing. Now, our Lord is still speaking to this man. This man who thinks that his understanding is sufficient to grasp this mighty revelation. And here he's going to display before him the love of God. And as he does so, and as we listen to it this evening, I think we shall all see that our understandings are totally inadequate. This love of God. Well, let's look at it. There are two propositions here, as I understand it. I'm taking the verse in a very general form this evening. The Lord Jesus Christ is here saying to Nicodemus, that he is in this world in order to provide a way of salvation because of God's love. He has already been telling him what he's going to do about his death. Here he says, do you know why all that's going to happen? He says, it is because of the love of my father. I want to say just a word on this before I come to my second principle for this reason. There are some people who seem to think that the only active agent in men's salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ. There are some who are so much in error that they seem to picture God the Father as looking on impassively upon mankind in sin, as just the great lawgiver who is opposed utterly to men in sin and who does nothing at all about him, but that the son, having done something for men, goes back and pleads with his father and at last extracts forgiveness from him. What a terrible misunderstanding of the scriptures. There have been even certain hymns that have said that and have taught that. They have pictured the Lord Jesus Christ, as it were, pleading with his Father to forgive men, pleading the merits of his own blood, and pleading with the Father to forgive. It's altogether wrong. This verse alone ought to have saved us from that misunderstanding. For what it says is this, that God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It is God the Father who provides salvation. It is God the Father who conceived it and planned it. It is he who has sent his Son into the world. Now, there are many statements of that in the Scripture, so that we are really without excuse. When the fullness of the times was come, God sent forth his own Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law. There it is again. God commended his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Herein is manifested the love of God that he hath sent his only begotten Son into the world that we through him might live. Oh, and I could keep you almost endlessly in quoting similar verses and similar statements. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. This theme might very well detain us this evening. There is nothing more wonderful than this. It is the very God whom we've offended who has provided the way of salvation himself. 
and he has sent his own son in order to achieve it. Very well, then our Lord is telling Nicodemus that. And at the same time, of course, he is again telling him, as he's already told him, that there is no other way of salvation. If it was absolutely essential that the Son of God should be crucified, I say once more, then there is no other way whereby men can be saved. It's no use saying the love of God. The love of God alone without doing anything does not save. The love of God saves by sending him and by his dying upon the cross. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And there is no man who is so much in a fool's paradise as the man who says, I'm not interested in your doctrines of atonement and of blood and of reconciliation. All I know is that God is love. My dear friend, if that is all you know, you'll never know the love of God, but you'll know his wrath. There is only one way of salvation. It is in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if you don't believe that, well then this very verse tells you that you're still in a perishing condition. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Very well, let me come to my second principle, which is this. The greatness of the love as it is shown in salvation. That is really the extra thing in this particular verse. As I've said, the other doctrines have already been dealt with in a sense, and they're just repeated here. But here is something that hasn't been stated before. God so loved the world. And the operative word, of course, is the word soul. Now then, let me put it to you like this. What do we really know about the love of God? That's the question. Most people seem to think they know all about the love of God. And I say it is because they think they know all about the love of God that they're not interested in the Bible. They never read it. They never pray to God. They say, it's all right, God is love. They think they know everything about God's love of everything. The most wonderful thing even in God. They think they know all about that, and they're not interested in other things. Isn't it monstrous? Isn't it tragic? What our Lord is really saying here is this. You know nothing about the love of God unless you know everything that is included in this word so. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How can we find out something about the love of God? The love of God is as great as God himself. It's infinite, it's eternal, it's everlasting. Do you claim that you believe in the love of God and that you know the love of God? Well, let's compare and contrast your notion of God's love with the Lord Jesus Christ's idea about it. Here, he gives us the measurements of it in the word so. Here they are. The first thing that we've got to know before we can know anything about the love of God is the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That, says the Lord Jesus Christ to Nicodemus, is the amazing thing. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That, says the Lord Jesus Christ to Nicodemus, is the amazing thing. That he loved the world. What does the world mean? Well, obviously it doesn't mean the physical universe. Uh, what does it mean then? Well, the world must mean humanity. 
It must mean human nature. I don't mean by that the collection of every single individual human being. I mean man as God created man, human nature. That's what God loves. But uh, where is the greatness of God's love in that, says someone? Ah, it all depends upon what your view is of humanity, the world. Well, now then, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Lord Jesus Christ himself say about this? It's perfectly clear. It's here everywhere. The world is that which is always contrasted with God and with the realm in which he rules and in which he dwells. The world is the realm in which Satan works and exists and dominates. He is called the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. That is the world. The world in Scripture always means mankind, human nature, since the fall. You know what that means? God made man perfect and he put him there in that garden and man was living a life in perfect correspondence with God. But alas, man in his folly listened to the tempter and he rebelled against God. He asserted his will against God's will. He put his desire instead of God's desire. He satisfied his own flesh instead of satisfying the law of God. And as the result of that, he fell. He became a sinner. And his whole life ever since has been a life of sin. I needn't keep you, I needn't detain you. We all surely know what the world is like, don't we? What humanity is like. If you've been reading your Sunday newspapers, you know exactly what it's like. Especially if you read the paper that has the largest circulation. You know exactly what human nature is like. That's where they get all the details from, from the law courts. God so loved the world. The place in which you see so much lust and passion and greed and jealousy and envy, malice, bitterness, hatred. That's the world. That's humanity. That's human nature now. Now, I, I'm not being unfair. This isn't my personal view. I'm suggesting to you that the facts of life are saying this. I'm simply reporting what the newspapers are reporting and what we're all aware of. What is the world? Well, look into your own heart. Look into yourself. We all know what's meant by lust and passion, don't we? We know what is meant by inordinate affection. We know what it is to have an, an uncontrollable desire. Though our conscience prohibits it, though our intellect may prohibit it, we want it. We must have it. Though it may be in ruination to us, still, though it may mean that we become cads and trample on some sanctity, still we do it. It's in us all. That's the world. That's man. That's human nature. It's no use saying that this is just pessimism. It's no use just saying that this is something that man used to believe. I'm not speaking the Bible at the moment. I'm simply describing yourself to you and myself to myself and mankind as it's living this evening. That's the world. And you see, we cannot hope to understand the love of God unless we understand that. This perishing world. This world that is organized by these evil powers and forces. 
And we don't begin to understand even the international situation unless we believe that and see that. You can't explain these things in terms of men. How childish we are. It's always some men, the Kaiser, Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, Nasser. As if one man can do it all. What's at the back of the men? What's at the back of the nations? What is this? Why should our world be as it is? I say there's only one explanation. The world, man, men are under this power, this evil power. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, says the Apostle Paul. And how true it is. Haven't you experienced it? You may wake up in the morning with your mind full of beautiful thoughts. You may read a beautiful book. You may read the Bible. And you want to know God and serve him. Suddenly, a a foul thought comes to you. An evil imagination. Where did it come from? It came from the devil. Or it came from your own members. This evil principle that is in man. That's the world. God made man perfect. Man has fallen to that. And if you're interested in the love of God, my friend, this is the way to understand it. That God, in his infinite love, even loves that. You see how inadequate our conception of God's love is. If your idea of man is that man is after all very wonderful and that the world is a wonderful and a beautiful place and that man mustn't be described like this, that this is negative and destructive and that there isn't such a thing as sin, that man really is a very fine person after all. Well, if you're right, you see, and God loves uh, that kind of individual, How much smaller is his love than if what the Bible says about men is true? What I've just been saying to you is true. Oh, this is the love of God. That though a man is like that, the world is in that condition. God has so loved it. That's love. Loving the ugly, loving the vile, loving the foul, loving the offensive, the festering, the putrefying. But that is God's love. Very well, let me just mention one other thing to you. The second way in which you measure and estimate this love of God is this. You look at this second great category. His only begotten Son. It would be a wonderful love in God if he raised up human teachers to go and speak to mankind in that condition. He's done that. He did it in the Old Testament. He did it through the patriarchs. He did it through certain kings. He did it in that mighty succession of prophets that he raised to present the truth to the people and to call them to repentance and plead with them to turn back to God. All that is an evidence of God's love and a wonderful evidence. If God were like you and myself, he would have turned his back upon mankind long ago and have allowed it to hurtle itself to destruction. But God didn't. He worked right through that Old Testament and sent those emissaries. It was amazing love. But all that pales into insignificance side by side with this. God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. His son. His only begotten son. This unique son. This son who had been in his bosom from all eternity. 
This one of whom the prologue of John's gospel speaks in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That's it. God's only begotten Son, not a Son, the Son. God's own Son, God's Son, the only begotten, not created. Men are referred to in the Bible sometimes as sons of God, yes, but they're created sons of God. The angels are sometimes referred to as sons of God, but the angels were created. Here is one of whom we say, not created, only begotten, uncreated, existing in the bosom of the Father, from eternity to eternity, co-equal, co-eternal. God as the Father is God. God the eternal Son. And this is where you see the love of God. That the everlasting Father sent the everlasting Son out of heaven into a world like this, here in his love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Have you ever seen it? You who claim to know the love of God, have you ever measured it in this way? That God should have sent out his own only begotten Son into a world like this. You and I at times feel that it's bad enough and almost beyond endurance. We that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, says a sensitive holy soul like the Apostle Paul after his conversion. Very well, if that is so with the servant, what must it have been to the Son? Can you imagine what this world was like to the Son of God? who had always lived in the purity and the holiness of heaven and of God, and comes into a world like this, and felt its venom and its malice and its hatred, and its bitterness and scorn and passion, saw the lust-controlling men, saw the hatred and the violence and the jeering, came down into it all, and came for our salvation. That's how you begin to understand the little word so, which spans the love of God. But before I close, permit me to say just a word about this next matter this word gave. I told you just now that I see the whole of the doctrine of the atonement in the word gave. But I don't want to look at it this evening so much from that standpoint. As in this way, what does it mean? Why did he say gave here? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why didn't he say God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world to teach and to give an example, and to work miracles. That was the sort of idea that Nicodemus had, you remember. You must be a teacher sent from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Ah, but that isn't what he said. God so loved the world that he gave. Well, in what sense has he given him? What's the connection? What's the context of the word give? What does it lead to? He gave his only son. To whom did he give him? To what did he give him? He must have given him to something or to somebody. And you know there's only one answer to these questions. Let me quote you some other scriptures which explain this word gave. The Apostle Paul in the epistle to the Romans at the end of the fourth chapter, the 25th verse of the fourth chapter uses this expression. Referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, Who was delivered for our offenses 
and raised again for our justification. Delivered. Given over. He says it again in the 8th chapter of the epistle to the Romans in a still more wonderful manner. Listen to this. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? There's the content of gave. He gave him up. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up, gave him up. To what? Gave him up to the death of the cross. Gave him up to the agony and the shame and the suffering of Calvary. It's the only content of this word gave. It has no other meaning. And as I've already reminded you, this 16th verse is a summary of the previous verses. He's already told us what the word gave means in verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, crucified on a tree, hanged on a pole, and held up for men to look at as the only way of salvation. The love of God, well, here is the love of God. He that spared not his own son. What's he mean by that? What's he mean by saying that God didn't spare his own son there on Calvary? Oh, I'll tell you what it means. This Son of God had come from heaven into this world to bear your sins and mine. He took them on himself. He said to John the Baptist, baptize me. No, no, says John, you ought to be baptizing me, not I, you. No, no, he says, suffer it. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. What he meant was this. He was there identifying himself with our sins. He was taking them to himself. He has come to bear them and to bear their punishment. He took them on himself. His father put them on him. And this is what Paul means, he that spared not his own son. He looked at him there on Calvary with your sins and mine upon him. And he smote him. He didn't spare him because he was his own son. He had said that he was going to deal with sin, that he was going to punish sin. And he did punish sin in his own son. He spared him nothing. He poured out the vials of his wrath upon him. That's why he died of a broken heart. He kept nothing back from him. He endured the pain and the agony of hell for all who believe in him. He spared him nothing. There is nothing connected with the punishment of sin that the Son of God did not experience and feel there on Calvary's cross. He gave his only begotten Son to that. He spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all. And in so doing, he made and provided a way of salvation for us. And the result is, you see, that whosoever believeth in him, whosoever sees himself as a vile, hopeless sinner, and who sees that God has punished him and his sin in the person of his own Son upon Calvary's cross, and who trusts to that and to that alone. Such a person shall not perish. He is immediately forgiven. And he is furthermore given the gift of everlasting of eternal life. He's made a partaker, says Peter, of the divine nature. 
He becomes a son of God, a child of God, and he has a hope of heaven and of glory. Did your conception of the love of God include all that? Is that your idea of the love of God? When you say, oh, I only want to know about the love of God. My dear friend, haven't you seen that you know nothing about the love of God unless you interpret it in the terms of this verse? If you think the love of God is something that can wink at sin and pretend it hasn't seen it, you're insulting God. And you'll never know his love, but I say again, you'll know his wrath. Because he's revealed his love, and you're without an excuse. It isn't what you and I think about the love of God that matters. Who are we? We are too small to understand the atom. We are too small to understand ourselves. Who are we to understand God's love? There is only one who really knows what God's love is. And that is God's only begotten Son. And here he was telling Nicodemus. And here tonight he tells you and he tells me. That that is God's love. That though you and I richly deserve hell. Richly deserve it for being what we are, and for our arrogance against God. We richly deserve it. But though we deserve it, God has provided a way whereby we can escape it and become his children and spend eternity with him. And the way he chose, it was the only way was to give over his son to bear the full punishment of his own wrath and thereby deliver us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Have you believed in him? Are you trusting only to him and the merit of his blood? I plead with you, do so now. You perish without him, but with him you have everlasting life. Amen.